Well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, I hope you guys are reading ahead because, boy, this is a powerful, powerful epistle. It has been said that Paul's letter to the Ephesians, when compared to every other New Testament letter of his, stands out as the quintessent of Paulism. In theological circles, it's been called the queen of the epistles, and for good reason. It's different because Paul was not really addressing, as we read through this, you're going to see he's not really addressing any problems that were in the church as he did when he wrote to the Galatians and when he wrote to the Colossians. But many have said that among the epistles bearing his name, there's none greater than this particular epistle, the, the book of Ephesians. Matter of fact, in my own Bible collection through the years, and I still have most of the Bibles I've studied with, if you pick them up by the spine and you shake them, I'll guarantee you that the book of Ephesians will probably fall out of it just because I've read it so many times. And most people do when they read it because it's, it's so profound. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about it. Let me read you a quote from him. He said, Paul's epistles to the Ephesians is a complete body of divinity. In the first chapter, you have the doctrines of the gospel. In the next, you have the experience of the Christians. And before the epistle is finished, you have the precept of the Christian faith. Whoever would see Christianity in one treatise, let him read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the epistle to the Ephesians. And so while this uh, epistle to the Romans that Paul wrote, of course, focused mainly on God's work in the individual Christian, it's this epistle to the Ephesians that accompanies the great uh, themes of God's work. And that's what I love about it. And so as God was working and what he's done in the church, addressing the community of the believers as a whole, it's somewhat similar, as you're going to see as we get ready to start here in a minute, um, to Colossians. kind of has the same feel in respect that Paul wrote both of these epistles while he was in prison. And you really want to remember that, that Paul was sitting in a Roman prison when he wrote this epistle as he did the book of Colossians. It's been speculated that while he wrote this, when he was in prison, and he was writing to the church of Colossae. He gave Paul an opportunity to really, I guess, think more or to consider the place of the church and the purpose of God. And he addresses that very, very straightforwardly, as you're going to see. So once again, as you're reading it, keep in mind that he wrote this while he was in prison because it's so upbeat. It covers so many important things within the believer how we are to interact with uh, each other, with God, and, and the, just the precepts of the faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you want to turn there, you can. It's uh, chapter 2, I want to read verses 9 and 10. But here's what Paul wrote there. He said, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. So, you see, this great epistle that we are about to encounter is the fulfillment of what Paul says here in Corinthians. It reveals the things that God has prepared for us, you know, for those who love him. So let's take a look. Let's go ahead and start. This is going to be Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 we're going to be reading. Paul 
an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. If you're taking note, make note of that. To the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus. Paul starts his epistle with his typical Pauline greeting, grace and peace, as he always does. And you remember that it's always in that order, grace and peace. And I've said it a million times, I'm not the close to first, I'm not nearly the first to ever say it, but I certainly agree with the statement. I never really understood the peace of God until I fully grasped the grace of God, as it is with most people. One of the things when you talk to people who, especially those who are studiers and who love to get into theology and those things, and ask them, you know, if they're really grounded in the grace of God, how much peace that really brings to you, especially in a world that is full of turmoil as, as we get closer and closer to the coming of Christ. We're watching the world go through the birth pains of ready to give birth, you know, to the, to the church being taken. Um, but yeah. You're never really going to know the peace of God until you know the grace of God, not until you fully grasp it. Paul addressed this epistle to the saints. I remember when I was in the army, and I was a young man. And I, if you'd asked me if I was a Christian at the time, I would have said yes. Um, but I really didn't know the Lord. I, I, I really had no idea. Uh, I said I was a Christian. As a matter of fact, when you look at my dog tags, which are hanging in my study, I have this shadow box that has all my stuff in it. And, uh, it says religion, Baptist. I just thought that was kind of funny because the only reason I said that was because that's kind of what my parents told me the whole time I was growing up. It's like, if anybody asks you, yeah, we're Baptist. And uh, it was certainly wasn't because I even knew what a Baptist was, you know, uh, or anything. But I, it was just, it was a title to me. It, it just really wasn't. But there was this young man that I got to room with when I first got to Fort Hood. And I remember talking, and he kept talking to me about the Lord. He was certainly on fire for Christ. And I remember we got in this discussion. I don't remember what brought us to it, but he, he said, well, you know, I'm a saint. And I remember as a young man, the only time I had ever heard that word applied, of course, was in a Catholic way. Because, you know, saints are, you know, in the Catholic religion, of course, are, uh, you know, are people who have done something extraordinary, of course, have to be canonized by the church and all that stuff and of course uh, as it is with many of their doctrines it flies in the face of what the Bible actually teaches you know because a saint is really someone who's a believer you know so Paul addresses it to the saints which are at Ephesus you know and, and once again it's sad that you have other people who really don't grasp it and I didn't grasp it at one time but this young man tried his best to get me to understand that you know that any believer was a saint but I couldn't at the time couldn't get it so the word saint here in the Greek is, is an interesting word because it's the word hagios. And, and, and here's what it means. It means sacred. Now think about it. It means sacred. It means pure, morally blameless. I like that. Ceremonially consecrated. Now that's what you are. Okay? That's what you are. So he addresses it to the saints who are morally blameless. They are ceremonially consecrated. As we go through this epistle, you're going to discover the things that you have in Christ. You're going to discover what you are in Christ. And you need to take note of that. Because I'm telling you today, gang, for those who are not as fortunate as you, 
who don't have the group support to go through the scriptures together, who are left on their own, so to speak, and who don't take the time to self-feed, a lot of times they don't know what they have in Christ. They don't even know who they are in Christ. And so they sit in church year after year, you know, month after month, and, and time after time, and really are just suffering because they don't realize all that Jesus Christ has done for them. And right off the bat, Paul called all believers, those who are genuinely born again, who are in Christ Jesus, he called them saints, morally blameless. And I can hear some people thinking, it's whether you're sitting here or listing some of the ways, somebody's going, well, you don't know the guy that I have to sit next to in the pew. You know, going, I don't care. See, it isn't what you think about you or what you think about the other guy sitting in the pew next to you. It only matters what God thinks about him and what God has said and what God has called. I love the fact, you know, the Bible says God calls those things that what? Be not as though they were. And he does that by his grace alone. I'm thankful for that. I, I hope you are too because I know I fall so short of that, you know, in this life. I do. But I rest in the fact that Jesus Christ has accomplished this thing for me. At a present tense, and that's really what, G, what Paul was talking about here when he says, you know, to the saints, this is who you are, you know. It's a present tense thing. It's kind of like 2 Corinthians 5.17, for if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I like that. It's something that happens like that. It's there. It's done because of what Jesus has, has done for us. As we move through this epistle, there will be three major themes that you're going to see. It's going to jump out at you. And you can break it down into three words. Sit, stand, and walk. And I love it. So often in Armenian circles, churches today, those of the Wesleyan persuasion, often emphasize, and there's a historical theological reason for it, which I'll touch on tonight, but I'm not going to go in depth about it. But the reason that they do that is because of the way that they see the sin issue with mankind in, in the original state. But they often emphasize what you should do for God, what you're doing for God, what you ought to be doing for God. That's their emphasis. But the book of Ephesians is quite different because what it emphasizes first is are you seated, or that you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And that you are to stand firm in those things. Stand strong in the power of the Lord. You know, and, and in his mate. And, and then, and only then, once you're seated, once you're standing strong and in the power of his might, then he goes on to explain what we are to do as far as Christ is concerned. So the emphasis is really put on Jesus Christ. When you... Focus on works when that becomes the thing that you think makes a Christian. You will notice any people who, or any person who's come out of that, and they'll tell you how frustrating that can be. Why is that? Because when, you, when you're focused on works, 
And I've been there. I, I, I know what I'm talking about from personal experience. You, you build this idea of what a Christian is supposed to be in your own head. It's not based on Scripture. It's not, it's not really based on theology. But, you know, those of us who looked at our past life in Christ is, you know, we were really bad. And some of us were, no doubt. You know, Paul said, and such were some of you, you know. And he named off all kinds of crazy stuff that we've all been involved in in time past when we didn't know the Lord. But because of Christ, he says, now you were washed. Now you are clean. You know, now, now you're in Christ. And so when you focus on works, then all of a sudden, once again, you're going to find that you fall short of that. And you're going to build an image of yourself that you think a Christian ought to be that even you can't meet. This was what the Pharisees did. Jesus said that, that they would lay on the backs of their followers, you know, rules and regulations that they themselves wouldn't lift a little finger to do. They couldn't do it either, but they demanded it of other people. And so when you're works-based, when you're focused on works, this is what you ought to be doing, then it, it, it makes a type of people that are cynical, frustrated, hypocritical, self-righteous, miserable in reality. It makes them miserable. They're just miserable. I don't know whether you've ever received a really big gift. I have. I've been very fortunate in my life that I've been the recipient several times of really special gifting that God has given to me through people. The Bible says, given it shall be given, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. I've had this happen to me. But I have never received any greater gift then when I realized all that Jesus Christ had done for me, and that wasn't, you know, you know, it, I'd like to tell you it was from the very beginning of my salvation experience, but I'd be lying. Because when I first came to Christ, I had been so bad in, the, in life, I really felt that, that I wanted to be so good that I became a legalist. I became... Those, just like the Pharisees, not realizing it, I didn't plan on doing it. It wasn't like I was trying to be a hypocrite. I wasn't. I just wanted to do, and I had done so many things so wrong. I wanted to do everything right. And so I got so nitpicking about so many dumb things. And, you know, the people that were the recipients of that in my life, unfortunately, were my kids, you know, and those who were around me had to tolerate that. Because what I demanded of myself, which I wasn't able to beat, I demanded of them. And see, that's the problem with a Pharisee. You know, and keep it in mind, gang, when we throw out the word Pharisee, the Pharisees weren't all bad. Remember that. They weren't all bad. You know, they wanted to do what was right. They loved God. But it wasn't according to knowledge. You know, they had a zeal for God, Paul said. They had a zeal. And I had a zeal. The problem was, was that as the years went on, and, and it was just a handful of years really when I look back on it compared to when the Lord really opened my eyes to the grace of God. But it was enough years that it inflicted a lot of pain on people. And that's what I feel worst for some people about was that when I see them going that direction, uh, I, I feel bad for the people that is around them, you know. And Paul felt the same way when he talked about 
the Pharisees and those who were legalists. And of course, we just dealt with the, the book of Galatians where he dealt with that in depth. You know, you've got, you got to be circumcised and keep the law and here's what you've got to do. And he's going, oh man, you're missing the point. See, it's all been done for you. You know, it's all been done for you, which brings me back to my point. Have you ever received a really great gift? When I finally understood what the gift was, <laughs> because at first I thought it was simply the Lord saving me. Oh, I'm saved. I don't have to go to hell. Well, that's great. Well, that is good. That is good. You know, not burning for eternity is, that's a good thing, you know. But that's not what it's about. What it's about is all that Jesus Christ has done for us, gang. It's all of what Jesus did on our behalf. Even though we were hell bound, even though we were worthy of death, even though he came along and he, by his sheer will, as we're going to see, chose us, as the scriptures are going to tell us here in a moment, from the foundation of the world, picked you in spite of you, in spite of all the stupidity. That's the greatest gift. It's just the love of God and how he has shown that to us through his son, Jesus Christ, and all that that brings. Man, you know, Pastor Chuck Smith wrote a book years and years ago called Why Grace Changes Everything. And I so agree with that. <laughs> what a difference it makes in your life when you really, really grasp it. But as I said, some of my Armenian friends, because they're so focused on works, they believe in the grace of God. But sometimes they kind of mix it. And I know they don't mean to. But they believe in salvation by grace, but they maintain it by what they do. You understand? And that's a problem. It's not really what the Bible teaches. But under the doctrines of grace, as preached by the great reformers of Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, later George Whitfield, and, and, and you know Charles Spurgeon, I could name all these great men of God. Well, they emphasized what Jesus Christ had done, the sufficiency of the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary life, his death, his resurrection and the fact that he is standing at the right hand of the Father making intercession for each and every one of us. When we take the focus off of our works and we focus on Christ, that's the grace of God. That's what changes everything and it does make all the difference in the world. Look at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God of, uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath, once again, present tense, right? hath blessed us with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having, underline this next word, gang, predestined us unto adoption of children by Christ or Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Wow. First off, he says that he has given to us all spiritual blessing. It has. Has. Notice it says spiritual blessing. It doesn't say material blessing. Now, 
unfortunately, in the days that we are living in, and really it's been for many, many years, there are those within the church of Jesus Christ that put the emphasis upon the material blessing of God. And not that God doesn't bless us materialistically, because he has and he does. You know, the Bible says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. God takes care of us. And I heard a guy say one time, God doesn't you know, give you what you want. He, he only gives you what you need. And I'm going, uh, ain't the God I know. Because I've had the God I know give me all kinds of stuff I really didn't need, but, you know, and I didn't even know I wanted until I got it. You know, because he lavishes his love upon his children in so many ways. So I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with and what the Bible has a problem with is when we take the gospel of Jesus Christ and then we transfer it over to the receiving of material blessing and we begin to preach that. And it's so preached today. There's so many who have given in and it's a heresy, gang. Make no mistake about it. It is a heresy. Matter of fact, Paul in his first epistle to young pastor Timothy there in chapter 6, verse 5 of, of, of that epistle, he wrote this, speaking about those who say such things. He said, they are perfuse, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. You remember in the gospel when the disciples came to Jesus and, you know, the issue of money came up. And Jesus said, well, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. Now, I've heard all kinds of Gentiles make up every kind of excuse and interpretation of what that's supposed to be. Well, you see, there's actually a, a, a gate there in Israel. And, you know, it's, he really wasn't talking about, let me straighten that one out for you. Absolutely, he was talking about an eye of a needle. Why? Because the Jews absolutely believed, and even the disciples believed that wholeheartedly, that if you were rich, that it was an evident token of God's blessing upon you. And the more money you had, the more God loved you. They believed it, and many of them to this day believe it. And it has entered into the Gentile church, and it would take me two days to name every heretic that preaches that garbage. But there's a great book out there if you ever want to pick it up and get it. It's called The Seduction of Christianity. A uh, man by the name of, uh, of uh, Dave Hunt, uh, who's home with the Lord now, and T.A. McMahon, who happens to be a good friend of mine, uh, wrote it many, many years ago. And, and I'll tell you right up front, it was a time bomb that went off in Christendom when that book was published. Why? Because he names names. Recently, I sent out a... Uh, an email to, to everybody within our fellowship and some people who aren't even in the fellowship, but I sent a link to a, to a uh, sermon. And uh, Dr. Walter Martin was the one who preached it. And I just pulled it up and I just happened to be listening and I decided to share it because why? The topic of the sermon was the cult of liberalism, which we are seeing go rampant in the church today. So I listened to it. And it was like, Wow it sounded like something that was preached last week. And then I realized, oh my gosh, this was 1987. That sermon was preached in 1987. And it's only gotten worse. And he talked in there. And of course, Dr. Martin, and those of you who know who he was, and of course, the, one of the books he authored was The Kingdom of the Cults. Um, 
great man of God. And we are sorely worse off now because the Lord took him home. But so smart. The man was just so smart. And he knew so much. But he said the things that he did out of love and concern for the body of Christ. And he named names and he named every denomination, uh, that every major one that was even going, even his own. He was a Southern Baptist. And he talked about the Southern Baptist Convention and how in 1987, how corrupt it had become. And the seminaries and how they had gotten off and how their emphasis away from the Word of God. That's why I shared it. Because we need to know these things. Because it hasn't gotten any better. It's only gotten worse. And uh, I got a, an email from one person that said, wow, you know, what a testimony. Uh, timely. And I said, yeah, but the fact is now we're seeing what he said was true then, but now it's even come to fruition. And we're seeing the division that has drawn into the body of Christ. And many people, uh, but here's, here is what it is doing. And I believe this wholeheartedly. What you see going on in the body of Christ now, of course, is prophetic. Let's keep that in mind. The Bible is very clear in Thessalonians. He says, unless the falling away happened first, that the son of man will, or the son of perdition would not be revealed. So there is that falling away that has to happen, a falling away from the truth. But what it's doing is it's separating the wheat and the chaff, my friends. It really is. Those who genuinely want to serve Jesus Christ and who genuinely believe that that book that is sitting in front of you tonight is the absolute infallible word of God. And those who say, well, it contains the word of God. And there's a vast difference between the two. To say that it simply contains the word of God, but it's up for interpretation, you see. It's up for, you know, however you see it. Not even been that long ago, uh, just a few short months ago, I, and I know a young pastor who told a good friend of mine when they began to dispute about the truth of the scriptures and what it actually taught, he said, well, that's your interpretation. No, that's what it says. Interesting passage in the book of Peter. He says, now, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Well, what does that mean, Peter? It means what the Bible says is what it means. And what it means is what it says. It's that simple. But that's what we're seeing go on in the church today. There's a dividing coming in. Why? Because I believe wholeheartedly that the Lord is at the door. I really do. Paul the Apostle believed that. So it's not unique to me. But I think we have one up on Paul. Why? Because there was one major prophecy that had long time to be fulfilled when Paul thought that he was at the door, at the, you know, the Lord's return. And that was the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. Well, that's a long happened. And it's interesting that when you deal with that issue, he says that this generation, the generation that sees the restoration of Israel would not pass until all these things be fulfilled. Now, I know there's a few of you sitting here tonight that very well may have been alive and well in 1948. Just a, just a show of hands. Anybody who was here live and well in 1948. There you go. That's my point. This generation that saw that, you know. And so my point is, we're watching a, a division. And now we're beginning to see pestilence enter into the world like it's never been entered before. I, I was listening to a report yesterday, and I didn't mean this study to become a one on pro prophetic uh, utterance, but... Suffice it to, to say, maybe the Lord wants you to hear this. We've seen 
sickness before. There has been in the past of this, not only in this country, but in the world, pandemics, no doubt. But what makes this time special? Well, no other time in history. Now, there was a big pandemic back in 1918, I believe it was, a big flu epidemic that killed millions of people, 50 million, I think it was, worldwide. And this is a time when there was only like 1.2 million people in the world. So 50 million people is a lot of people. Well, there's over 7 billion people on the face of the earth today. And back then, the only way they had to travel was by boat or train. And there was no, there was no airliners back then. There was no mass transit the way we understand it. I heard a guy on news last night. He said, uh, we have stopped all traffic going into China because of this new virus is spreading so rapidly. But we haven't stopped the Chinese from coming here. Have you noticed that? Isn't that crazy? Oh, you know, that's crazy. So the possibility of pandemics now is not if, it's when. When you go to Luke chapter 21 and you look at the things that are going to be happening at the time of the end, he said there should be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the seas and the waves roaring, you know, men's hearts failing them for fear, for looking after those things which are coming upon the earth. And then they shall see the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great glory. But he goes on and he talks about when, you know, the, the signs of great earthquakes in diverse places, pestilence. But he says this, when all these things begin to happen, see, it's not when any one thing happening. He says, but when they all begin to happen as a crescendo in music, you know, there's that point in the orchestra with the crescendo and it builds and it builds to the climax of the song. That's what you're watching. You're watching the climax. You really are. And that's a glorious thing, you know? Well, the Apostle Paul believed he was living in a time. I believe we're living in a time. But Israel, they're the key to it now. And we are seeing all these things, you know? So it didn't shock me that there was a 7.7 earthquake, you know? And they're becoming more frequent. Pestilence, all these things. Um, Man, at the end of that thing in, in Luke, right there in that passage, he says, when you see all these things begin to come to pass, lift your head because your redemption draws nigh. I told somebody the other day, I said, we should look at this as a glorious opportunity to really preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, we need it more than the day that we first believed, you know, uh, now, I had a kid one time come up to me after I, I said such things, and he says, well, you make me want to quit school. I, I don't even want to go back to college. He was home on break. He goes, why even finish? And I said, because Jesus said, occupy till I come. Busy your hand, you know? And as you see the day approaching, well, then we want to gather together much. You know, he says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhort one another, and that's so much the more as you see the day approaching. I see it approaching, and I think you do too. But getting back to our study, you know, looking at the times that we're living in, men speaking perverse things and, and preaching that gain is godliness. You know, like I said, if you, if you want to research that more, uh, look up that book, um, The Seduction of Christianity. I don't know if we can get it in our library. We might be able to. I can check into that. 
But Paul goes on and he says, but the God of our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, in Christ. So as we go through this epistle, do yourself a favor and highlight every time it says in Christ, in him, through him, and look at the emphasis that the Bible, that this book puts upon Jesus Christ. It solely puts it on Jesus. And I'm glad for that. When Paul used the phrase in heavenly places in Christ, he was given us both a kind of, uh, the kind of blessing and the location of it. It's spiritual. And they're much better, far better, than any material blessing that we could ever have because material blessings fade. They wear out. They corrupt. They eventually rust. They usually, you know, after a while they fall. But the blessing that, it has, that is waiting for us in heaven, not so, because they are in Christ and they are more secure than any earthly blessing could ever be. But here's what Paul says. We were chosen. Chosen, verse 4, he says there. When? Before the foundation of the earth. That's when God chose you. Some people have a hard time with predestination. I remember many years ago, this one old guy, oh, they're one of those predestination people. And I said, you mean the ones that believe the Bible? because <laughs> the Bible uses that term, and it uses it pretty often. You know, predestination. I, for the life of me, I don't understand why people have a hard time with it. I just don't. I embrace it. I thank God for it. Over and over, the Scriptures declare that you are chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Jesus told his own disciples, you haven't chosen me. I have chosen you. I love that. Man has nothing to do with it. This has been an argument uh, in the church for centuries. It's what separates our Armenian friends and our Calvinistic friends. This very issue. How much of it is God and how much is my responsibility, man's responsibility? Hmm. You know, if you realize one of the things that to, to grasp fully if you really want to get a handle on it, it is the sovereignty of God. If God is sovereign, then God is sovereign. What's that mean? He's in control of everything. He has complete control. Not only does he have foreknowledge, but he has all knowledge. He is omniscient. You know? You know, John Wesley, and when you think about it, you know, what, what was it, you know, my Armenian friends, that drives them to embrace that or to have a problem with the, the doctrine of election. And when you get down to it and you look at how these guys and what, and what it really separates is them, how they view original sin. This is really what separates them. It shouldn't, but it does. John Wesley maintained that the fall of man made all people sinners. True, true statement. He believed that they still had free will. That's debatable. I know a lot of people say, oh, absolutely, it makes sense, we got free will. Well, you have free will to a point. I mean, no doubt, you can, I chose to have falafel tonight for dinner, and it was good, I might have. Uh, but I could have chosen to have something else. Now, no doubt we have choice. But when it comes to the issue of salvation, Jesus made some pretty interesting statements. Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Spirit draw him. It takes God to enlighten you. But because Wesley thought that man was not responsible for original sin, and that's what he believed. He didn't think man was responsible for original sin. He always emphasized the actual sins 
of an individual. And you listen to any guy who was a great, and I'm not saying these guys weren't called by God. I believe they were. God uses, I mean, even if they're wrong. You know, God uses them. You know, you look at D.L. Moody. When this guy would preach, I mean, thousands of people, he was a modern-day, uh, you know, uh, Billy Graham for his time. Thousands of people came to Christ. But what was his emphasis? His emphasis was upon sins, uh, plural. What, what you have done. But see, the problem is they, that's how they view original sin. They didn't see it as a fallen state of man. They didn't see it as a sin condition, which the Bible absolutely says. Well, how do you come to that? Well, there's several places, really. You know, you look at Romans 5.14. He says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. So what's he saying there? Well, Paul was saying in Romans that even though we, you know, Adam and Eve's progeny, did not sin after the same manner of Adam, yet because we are his offspring, his sin came upon all of us and thereby death came upon all men. So all men die because of sin. It's not what you have done, it's what you are. You're born a sinner. Even Bob Dylan, when he was serving the Lord, understood this when he wrote the song Saved. I was blinded by the devil, born already ruined, stone cold dead as I stepped out of the womb. True statement, fact. Very theological, very sound. Why? Because it's a fact. It's what you are. You know, the fact is, even though we didn't sin after the same manner of Adam, yet we, by vicariousness, acquired everything that Adam was, which wasn't good. The fact that it isn't individual sins that, that Christ died for, John the Baptist said it. It's in John. Look it up. It's chapter 1, verse 29. And you remember this, the story when John the Baptist was out baptizing. Remember that? And he started talking about there's one coming. You know, he's talking about Jesus Christ. And he looks up and he sees Jesus coming over the hill. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Not plural. You know, a man doesn't, you know, stealing a horse doesn't make a man a horse thief. He stole the horse because he is a horse thief. It's that different. But Wesley and my Armenian friends, they don't see it that way. They think that man was not responsible for original sin. That was only Adam. You know, it made you a sinner. But that wasn't the real problem. But it is the real problem. And this is why they have a hard time with predestination. This is why they have a hard time with the doctrine of election. Because they want to believe that somehow they have something to do with it. It just isn't the case. Like I said, there in John 1, he says, Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. It's, it's uno. It's mono. Not, not sins, not plural. You know, so just as Adam's sin made all men sinners, he goes on there in Romans to say that because of one man's righteousness, which is Jesus Christ, all men were made righteous. Why? Because it's achieved vicariously. You know, Paul said here in, in verse 4 that we were chosen in him when? Before the foundation of the world. Before you ever did anything right or wrong. Now think about this, and, and of course we won't ask for hands, but how many of you <laughs> have ever done some really stupid, sinful things? I already know the answer, and so does God. You know, we all have. There's not anybody sitting here within the sound of my voice that could say, not me. Well, you might say it, but it just isn't true. 
The fact is you have. And I love that little meme that's been passed around on Facebook that says God had already figured in your stupidity when he chose you. Absolutely he did. Why? Because he's sovereign. He is sovereign. And he knew us, and yet he still chose you. And so often people go, yeah, Doug, but man, you know, I, I screwed up. I did this, I did that. I'm going, yep, and he still chose you. And once again, he chose you knowing that that would happen. You know, there's no speed bumps with God, and we think that there is. So often we think we do something stupid or we are overtaken in a fault. Remember our last study, you know, there in Galatians 6. We get overtaken in a fault and we find ourselves in the middle of a sin, whether it's purposeful or, or, or by accident, if that's even possible. And so often we think that we surprised God. God is not surprised by your stupidity and sin. You can't surprise God. Why? Because he's God. He knows everything. He knew it from the foundation of the earth. And this is the beauty of God's election. He picked you before you ever knew it. Even while we were yet sinners, Paul said, Christ died for the ungodly, for those who had turned their back on God. He died for those of us, any person born outside of Christ, which is all of us, were enemies of God. And yet Jesus died for you and chose you. Now, when you talk about the issue of predestination, somebody's going to say it, and I know it's been asked a million times in the centuries that we've been arguing about it. Well, how do I know then? How do I know I'm chosen? Good question. I'm wondering how I know you're chosen too. <laughs> had a lady, <laughs> I had a lady, it's been a few years, a couple, two or three years ago, I was helping out doing something with the kids and uh, had a few of them in there and I let them, in a, and I asked them, you know, how many of you guys want to give your life to Jesus, you know? Simple question. I had 12 kids and raised their hand. I do. Great. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. They stood up. I said, let's pray. I let them in a sinner's prayer. After they left, they went to their next room. The lady who was helping me out, God bless her, she come up, she goes, and she was concerned. She said, how do, how do you know that was real? I said, darling, I don't even know that you're real. How do I know you're real? I don't know. God knows. But if anybody wants to pray a prayer of salvation, you pray with them. It's not up to you to determine who is real and who is not, who's elected and who isn't. I don't know. But I know this, that those he has chosen, he did it from the foundation of the earth. And regardless of what time in life you come to him, it's because he drew you. It's because he opened your eyes to it. And you finally said, you know what? I need Jesus Christ. You know, I need that. And uh, so we don't, we don't know. How do I know I'm chosen? I heard Pastor Chuck say this one time. I agree with him. If you, if you have come to Christ and you've put your faith in him, it's like standing before a door. And on this side of the door, it says, whosoever will. And as you go, I'm a whosoever. And you walk through the door and you shut it. And now you're in Christ. You turn around and on the other side of the door, it says, chosen, elected. That's how you know. That's how you know. I do not believe for one second that a person who is not chosen by God will ever care one iota about the things of God. He doesn't want to know. He doesn't care to know. 
He doesn't want, I heard an old pastor one time on a Calvary Chapel station, and somebody had called in and asked a question, you know, well, what about people who, how did he put it? You know, the, the, the implication was that somehow some people are going to be drawn into heaven like being drugged, you know, drugged by their feet. <laughs> and of course, rightly, he said, God will not save anyone who does not want to be. It's that simple. God isn't going to save anyone who doesn't want to be saved. The question is, you're questioning, am I called? Do you want to be? Then you are. If your answer is yes, I want to be, then you are. You are called. You're part of that predestined. God has chosen you from the foundation of the world. It's not a hard equation. I don't know why people struggle with it so much. And I, well, I, I can't really say it. I think I do know why. The, the reason why is because mankind wants to have his fingers in it. Why? We always do. We want to have to do something about it. You know, we just have a hard time receiving grace gracefully. Look at Romans 9. You can turn here with me if you want to. This is pretty good sized piece of scripture. I want to read it with you. But just talking about the issue of predestination, you know, God is sovereign. And so he is in control. It's Romans 9. I'm going to start in verse 20. And it's he alone who saves. Thus, you know, Paul says he's predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself. You know? The scriptures declare there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeketh after God. You know, we've all like sheep gone astray. So nobody's seeking. But look at here in verse 20. He says, but nay, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay and the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, another unto dishonor? What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with such long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath beforehand prepared unto glory. Notice he says, he prepared us beforehand unto glory. Even us whom he hath called And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's you. Not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So it's God. He is the one who calls. God is the one who enlightens. God is the one who desires you to be his own. He has bought you with a price. It's his call. Why? Because he's God. There's no great mystery to it, really. God has revealed it to us in this present time. Man simply desires to have something to do with it. That is in his own salvation, but God will have none of it. Even in the Old Testament, I'm going to close with this. When they were in the wilderness, and the Jews were given the task of building the altar, God told them that they were to build the altar not with stones that were hewn by hand, They weren't allowed to take a chisel. They weren't allowed to have a hammer. They weren't allowed to use any of that. They had to take stones and simply place them upon, you know, one another in order to form an altar that they might sacrifice upon it. Why? It was a foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ would be to us in that God would not permit mankind to have anything to do with it. 
He wasn't going to allow man to put one chisel mark on the altar of the sacrifice. And thus, he will not allow mankind to have anything to do with his own salvation. The fact is, God calls, God enlightens, he saves, he does it all. Jesus lived for you, he died for you, he rose from the dead for you. And if you've never been baptized, actually, he was baptized for you. Everything Jesus did was vicarious for each and every one of us and every one of us who are believing in him, that are in him, seated with him, can say hallelujah to that because any other way, I'm not sure that anybody would be safe any other way. Read on. It gets better. Father, we love you and we thank you for this great, great epistle, Lord Father. And we do thank you that you have chosen from the foundation of the world those, Lord Father, who would believe in you. I thank you for that. I don't question it, Lord. I just embrace it and, I, and I'm so glad that whosoever wills, Lord Father, uh, they can come and uh, you will draw them if they want to be. And so, Lord Father, I am thankful for that. So we love you. I pray that you would be with those tonight, Lord Father, who maybe have questioned these things in their own mind. I pray that you would enlighten them, Lord Father, and uh, draw them to yourself and give them strength in you, Lord Father, to know you and the fellowship of your suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.